Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world. Welcome to Lore Britannia series of Mythos, where we explore the fascinating folklore of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, both ancient and contemporary. To the ancient Romans, Britain was a remote and mysterious island, a realm that was a conjunction of life and death, the fleshly and the spiritual. Indeed, Procopius, historian of the Byzantine Empire, tells a fascinating tale that positions the mysterious Britannia as a sort of Hades and the channel as congruous with the River Styx. And as the story goes, in fishing villages in Europe, there were ancient Franks who had a singularly odd occupation. Late at night, these fishermen would be awoken by a persistent knocking and a voice calling them forth into the darkness and to the seashore. They felt utterly compelled to obey, and so would leave their beds with no clear or conscious understanding of their task. Then, upon arriving at the shore, they would see skiffs ready and waiting in the dark waters, and strangely, no man would be in them and the skiffs were only an approximation of the more familiar sea vessels the fishermen knew. These were something else altogether. Feeling the same uncanny compulsion as if beckoned and instructed by unknown forces, the Frankish fishermen would step inside, aware that the boat was weighed down with a large number of invisible passengers. And so full of spectral presences was this boat, that there was only a finger's breadth between the lapping water and the edge of the boat. Once they departed, the fishermen would navigate the boat towards Britannia, and in a spectacular departure from the normal rules of time and space, would cross the sea within an hour. Then, when they arrived, the strange ghostly burden in the boat would be relieved upon the shore, and the skiffs would depart with unusual speed, suddenly light, and rising above the waves. The land of the dead, Britannia, and her forests, caverns, and streams are indeed uncanny places. The haunts of wraiths, portents, and deadly devourers of children, beings who themselves either embody destructive and deadly forces, or foretell the coming of death and destruction. From the stately Windsor Forest to Scotland's misshrouded locks and streams, from dark and dank Welsh coal mines to barren sandstone hills in Leicestershire, we will explore stories that embody our troubled relationship with our own physical vulnerability with winter, unknown spiritual forces with the strains and dangers of manual labor, with geological forces, and ultimately with the inevitability of death itself. Welcome to the Land of the Dead, Part 1 of Mythos. Story 1. Hearn the Hunter and Windsor Forest Winter Solstice A thick, otherworldly mist obscures the little village along the Thames River, cotton-wooling what is left of Windsor Forest. A few young men, Eton scholars, have embarked on a small adventure into the weird afternoon twilight that brings the eons-deep winter night. And on this stark, invigorating winter's day, the sky, as it deepens tonight, becomes a mixture of velvet blue and star milk. 
the young men walk towards the tree line and halt suddenly. From the mist which is floating and curling amongst the trees and their black witch-finger branches, there is the sudden barking of a roe deer, strangely like a dog's bark, but with a, a yelping quality. This itself isn't surprising. They've heard it many times before. There's something else, though, something uncanny and disturbing. A voice in the midst of the barking. The young men look around, their pace towards the tree line more cautious now. The barking subsides for just a brief moment and then resumes. The same clear human articulation mingled with the deer's call, as if the creatures have been possessed by a vengeful spirit, calling out for justice. The cacophony of deer cries ebbs and floats as the boys enter the forest, noticing a particularly Gog and Magog-like oak tree with infinite, winding, tortuous branches and magically potent mistletoe nestling on its winter bareness. The night has deepened now, and the glade is all shadow and thinning mist. Human eyes must strain and labor. Then there is a rustling, an unusual susurration in the limp dead compost of the forest floor. The young men mutter to themselves, assuaging the unusual gut dread they feel with assurances that it is only a small animal or perhaps one of the deer. And as a form emerges from the forest, there is a momentary sigh of relief at the sight of two little roe deer. There is a sad, pathetic limp in their step, not from an injury, but from a, a profound sense of grief that emanates from them. They stop suddenly beneath the charred skeleton canopy of the leafless oak and begin crying out. The young men can only look at each other, speechless. They are, these dear are saying something, a single word, yet now so mingled with guttural barking that the word is impossible to make out. Then, another rustling in the forest, this time accompanied by the snapping twigs that indicate something much larger. And if the young men could speak, they would say that the entire forest seemed to be weeping, that all around them had a sort of static energy infused with a hectic sort of mourning, like the mewing shock of one who has suddenly discovered a loved one dead. Then strangely, what must be a hunting horn, a bellowing wail that seems to be a herald of something dark to come. And amidst this arboreal mourning to the arrhythmic cries of the deer, a horse-mounted figure emerges into the converse spotlight of shadow and meager moonlight. The young men are filled with cowering fear and boyish awe. And many, many years later, after the bloody shrapnel and mind-jarring bullet spray of both world wars have raped Europa and left her limp and lifeless, it is then that the young men describe what others had also seen and felt and known in their very bones in those days and months leading to the wars. A being whose appearance was said by many witnesses to be saturated in hellish prophecy. A mourning portent of mass human aggression and national trauma. A being seen with much greater frequency in the months leading up to the world wars. In hushed awe, 
the now elderly men speak in fragments. A horse-mounted man with bear-growl intimidation in his lean muscles and fox-twitching readiness in the sinewy definition of his arms and shoulders and calves. Over his broad chest and lower body was draped deerskin, meager protection from the cold. And yet, the man seemed impervious to it. As did the hounds, milling around his horse, coal-black with a sense of doom and future sorrow in their restless pacing and guttural growls. The whole strange scene seemed a portent as a warning, as if they all sensed the arrival of a terrible predator, and indeed that great predator, mechanized warfare, soon followed. But most astonishing of all was the fact that from his large head sprouted the majestic horns of an ages-old stag, whose horns never shed or broke but continued reaching for the most remote ends of heavenly spheres. Velvet hide and green moss and rust-colored lichen covered the antlers, as if this man had fused his humanity with the forest. And on his shoulder sat a horned owl, whose eyes were as wide as saucers, wide with knowing, terrible knowing. And the old men will also tell you that all at once they realized what the deer had been calling all along, Hearn, Hearn. Story 2. Black Annis in her cave, Leicestershire, England. In a poor hut not far from the Dane Hills, wasteland of low sandstone hills, a man and his wife scurries to fasten animal hide across their glassless windows, mere holes between their firelit dwelling and that hungry crone howl mingling with the cold wind. The skins all tough sacrifice and animal loyalty would surely protect them from her greedy reaching arms. As another telltale screech makes them cower like small, threatened animals, all eyes turn to the basket of witch herbs on the table. As if on cue, the man and his wife scramble for the basket and begin hanging the precious plants over the windows. Surely the witch herbs will keep her at bay, and once the protective measures have been taken and both sink into their rickety chairs fatigued and subdued, they realize something. Their little boy has not returned. They have heard neither him or his rambunctious group of friends coming home for dinner. Now, what they do not know is that their precious boy, along with his daring friends, are crawling into her subterranean lair, which exhales cold plutonium breath. She doesn't really exist after all, and a mutual dare mingled with boyish concepts of honor compel them into the opening of the sandstone hill cave, taking no heed of the evil-looking ancient oak growing out of a cleft in the rock, nor the foul intention emanating from its bare, tortuous limbs outspread like arms, as if in mockery of motherly welcome. Nor do the boys take heed of the hostile, thorny bushes that seem to forbid entry. 
Only one boy pauses to notice what must be a bloody piece of sheepskin thrown unceremoniously just near the entrance. He suddenly remembered the hushed voices of his parents discussing a local shepherd who grieved the waning of his flock. Yet, the calls of his friends from deep within the narrow passage ahead and his own desperate need for acceptance propels him forward. And when he catches up with them, scurrying in a crouch in that claustrophobic tunnel, as cold as the vacuum of space, he stops just behind one of his friends and notices something odd. A ray of meager winter light reveals unusual grooves in the stone, unnatural groups, perhaps claw marks, emanating chaotic feelings of rage and hunger and animal intention. Then, on the floor in front of him, a strange black hooked thing, like a dog's claw but so large, it surely must have broken off the furious paws of a giant hellhound. He remembered a whispered tale about her, about her digging her lair out of the rock with gnarled hands, cruel talons encrusted with ice, blood, and human flesh. A solitary lair for a solitary rain. The boy's heart thuds in the face of this mounting evidence. Yet, he cannot turn back and abandon his foolish friends. He follows them further into the sharp, rocky domain, a burrow of lonely blackness, a gaping mouth with rocky teeth. A burrow indeed so full of hibernating sadness that the boy is reminded of a story he had heard once of a lonely hiker in some distant mountain range who had burrowed himself into a hole, dying alone and cold. Then the boys emerge into a slightly larger cave, though still cramped and burrow-like, and very dark. Unnerved, one of the boys slowly scans the hypothermic hovel with his meager torch, the small point of fire bringing no comfort in this womb of winter. The boys' muscles suddenly lock into absolute stillness, a scurrying sort of movement just ahead of them. Stillness. Then the scurrying again. The boy moves his torch from left to right with terror-stricken movements, a sort of puppet mockery of his bone-deep fear. A figure scurries into the light and then out again. There is a brief glimpse of a face, bluish, corpse-like, wobbling on a crouched body. The boys are too terrified to scream. Then, on the walls of this witch hovel, there is chaotic scraping. The torchlight searches again, propelled by terror, terror deep down where the spirit meets the bone. The meager light falls upon her. Grotesque textiles hanging off her body like torn flesh. The whitish tan hides of children and sheep stitched together with heathen skill. She does not look at them, only howls and scratches, the scrape scrape of her talons on rock, the auditory equivalent of a painful needle to the eye. Crouching, shivering, her movements are full of animal sorrow and primordial hunger. A vulnerable old lady, possessed. The boys are stiff, terror making their minds and bodies vague and immobile. 
Still, she does not look at them, seemingly hypnotized by her frantic scraping as if it were somehow therapeutic, as if she were trying to dig a grave for some interminable and pestering sorrow. Then, with a sudden howl, she jerks her head to look at them, her mouth rife with fleshy hunger and diseased ulcer. The torch is dropped, and the darkness becomes the stage for a performance of sound only, screeches and scurrying and chaotic escapes. The boys, having slipped and slided in gore, emerge wailing from that cave, exhaling cold Plutonian breath. The boys flee across the Dane Hills wasteland. Black Anasis screeches, hurrying behind them with eagle-propelled footing. And to this day, when they remember their escape, they choose to believe that Annis had already gorged on a sheep, her bloated witch body unable to catch them. Yes, it must have been a sheep. Story 3. The Pit of Ghosts and the Seven Whistlers. Port Talbot, South Wales. Deep in the earth, Beneath the pit headgear and the great wheels, the smell of oil, and the rhythm of the engines, beneath the great industrial extraction of precious coal, a tough sinewy miner named Old Thomas chips away at the bones of the earth, profound in power yet toxic for fragile humans. Old Thomas, down where his spirit meets his bones, is a tightly woven specimen of man, his body and mind packed tight with the memory of slippage and collapse, ear-splitting explosions, and what he could have sworn was a groan, deep in the blackest shafts. His lungs were laced with coal dust from all those years of close communion with the bones of the earth. And there were times like now, when old Thomas is crouched in the gawping gloom, his old bones creaking as he makes his way through a tunnel and emerges into a larger cave. Well, there are times when the blackness is alive, almost a form of speech. There are times in which the sense of being crowded by invisible presences becomes oppressive. So close to the thudding heart of the earth nestled in her bones, the old man's mind becomes vague and fearful, as if he has breathed in something spiritually toxic, the very breath of the underworld. Ahead of him, a journey of trams rumbles towards him, and with another gasping intake of the underworld's breath, old Thomas trembles. Just some distance from him, he sees a weird-looking man, pale and with silent and uncannily fluid movements jump onto the tram, he knew this man was not with him when he entered this portion of the mine, and the knowledge gives him lockjaw fear, a paralysis of will. And all he can do is stare at the, at the weird man whose absolute stillness gives the impression of a wall of wavering heat as if at any instant he will simply blink out of existence. There is a groan in the man's being, as if he had been crushed impressed by the bones of the earth, and as old Thomas stares after him, a hollow feeling, a mausoleum silence overwhelms him. The weird man, with almost lizard agility, leaps from the tram, and before his being fades to black, before the contours and lines of his form become fuzzy, as if 
gobbled away by the greedy obsidian nothingness, old Thomas sees his face and recognizes him as a fellow pitman who had died years before. And so the old man feels the greedy obsidian nothingness eating away at his own gut, for to see a pitman was a portent of coming due. An accident, something that would gather the bones of the pitmen with the very bones of the earth. The spirits of men joined with the eons-long silence of blackness. And perhaps the call of the underworld and its signs and prophetic sighs were so powerful that even the spirits of the sky heard. For as old Thomas emerges from the pit and into the fey boundary of twilight, he and his fellow pitmen are serenaded with an uncanny whistling. Uncanny because it seems to come from everywhere, as if one could reach out into another dimension and grasp these strange ethereal beings singing their dirge. And mingled with this weird frequency of whistle are the smothered wailings of children. This morning-saturated bird call and child cry the men know at once is the seven whistlers soul birds of the dead, wailing out their burden of spiritual sight, of minds that have permanently shifted planes and therefore have insight into imminent tragedies. And the miners knew the stories when some years ago the seven whistlers were heard just before a great explosion that ripped through the bones of the earth. Yet, hearth and home has a dulling effect. Once full and sitting by the fire, the pitmen shrug off the experience and would be damned if mere superstition would cost them a day's wage. And so lulled and lullabied they are that, as they slumber, they do not hear that weird frequency of whistle mingled with the smothered wailings of children, that morning-saturated bird call and child cry. So at dawn, old Thomas and his fellow pitmen go deep in the earth, beneath the pit headgear in the great wheels, the smell of oil and the rhythm of the engines beneath the great industrial extraction of precious coal. They labor amongst clanging trams alongside subterranean canyons of oily blackness. And as they crawl on hands and knees through tunnels lower than a kitchen worktop, there is a groan deep in the blackest shaft, somewhere above them in the brittle bones of the mined earth. The groan is accompanied by a great muffled boom, and the earth around them shifts as if they are inside a pain-racked stone leviathan. The shrieks of scurrying men shouting at each other to turn back are cut short, and old Thomas's tough, sinewy body feels a stone jaw engulf him, sharp flint teeth and great blunt molars squeezing his breath out, and then silence, and the sound of a few pebbles bouncing down the dusty mound of earth bone, entombing nearly one hundred miners. Story 4. The Ben Nye, The Western Isles, Scotland as Chief Clonrenald's faithful follower trekked through the night-shrouded Hebridean landscape of Stygian mist, deep locks and low-lying clouds, there seemed a doom-laden hum emanating from that powerful northern country, from the moorlands with its golden peat and silvery water-filled pox scars, 
and from further afield in the Benbeculian landscape, the craggy coasts of dark rock and green turf and moss and lichen, crashing waves upon the nice rocks, marked by stripes of sand-colored quartz-like stones, like a layer of crust deep in a miniature fake lobe. This land of rock and sea felt strangely ominous, saturated in second sight. Chief Clonrenold's man, named the Lad of the Wet Foot, neared a river ford where he heard, in the portentous, halted breath silence of the world, an ominous dirge full of moaning lament. With a slow step, he approached the ford and then halted. For perched on a rock in an amphibious crouch was a thin, cadaverously pale woman, thrusting a crimson-stained shroud in the water with a jarring slap and then wringing it with wraith-like hands. The wailing reminded the lad of a woman in the throes of childbirth, and indeed, he knew that she had died in the perilous childbed. This was an ill-fated specter who had straddled two worlds while birthing a bairn and had entered the fey land of death in the process. This was a fey wraith who now had special knowledge, a prophetic sight. The lad then saw her slimy, webbed foot all squelch and seaweed and all at once knew what he must do. As repulsive as this soaked specter was, the lad knew he must grab hold of her and the knowledge she contained. And so intent was she on washing the bloody funeral shroud, and so hypnotized by her own ominous lament, that the lad knew now was the moment. He approached slowly, feeling an atmosphere of terrible prophecy emanating from this wraith woman, as if her pumping blood and beating heart were death-saturated, full of liquid dirge. With a monumental act of the will, the lad grabbed the woman, who hissed and spat and wailed and writhed, her skin slipping against his biceps. His nostrils were assailed with a scent, like afterbirth, mingled with sweat. Yet he gripped her tighter. I know you, Ben Nye, I know you, the lad said through gritted teeth, for she was stronger than she seemed, this thin wraith that seemed birth depleted. Let me go, she replied, your earth reek stops my breath. Much rather would I have the fragrant incense of the mist of the mountains. I will let you go, Ben Nye, replied the lad, but only for the three wishes I know you must give. Her struggling stopped in bodily assent, but the lad tightened his grip nonetheless. Name them, she hissed, and so he did. He asked that the creek of his home would always have plenty of earth-enriching, fertilizing seaweed. She nodded in consent. He asked that he would get his chosen wife. The Ben Nye nodded again. Taking a deep breath, the lad then said, And I desire to know whose funeral shroud you are washing. You are chief, she whispered, Clonrenald. The lad let her go all at once, shocked by the revelation. Such peace and stability, such hearty laughter and good harvests had the reign of this chieftain seen. The lad was cut to his heart of hearts at such a loss. And with a sudden surge of rage, the lad took up his spear and stabbed the shroud, ripping it from the washerwoman's hands. A sense of weird dread 
as tangible as the invisible wall of heat surrounding a fire, surged through the spear and into his arm, a fey alchemic reaction that made him cry out and throw the shroud into the lock. And all that followed seemed unreal, saturated, soaked in mourning. Even the wind wailed as the lad then knelt before Clonrenald and told his story in hushed tones. The chief clapped the lad on his shoulder with almost fatherly affection and said, You walked before me, lad, many times to take the dew off the grass and to keep my feet dry. As faithful as a son you've been, and now, lad, I thank you for walking before me this one last time. Now I can prepare for my end with dignity, for the path you have walked before me cannot be escaped. And so this clan of the Western Isles, not begrudging the Benai nor the lad, followed their chieftain's orders. The cow was slaughtered, the meat was roasted and feasted upon at one last rip-roaring celebration, and both laughter and mourning mingled with the chill winds and the golden peat and the bone-hard rock and the crashing waves of their beloved land. And when the cow's skin was dried and made into a small boat, Clonrenald climbed inside and pushed off into that gray, tumultuous sea surrounded by dark, craggy coast and creeping mist. He would end his days with one last adventure, one last act of daring, and his clan watched from the shore as he peacefully floated into the darkness as if into the welcoming arms of a mother. In a distant land far surpassing the nine kingdoms of imagination, there was a girl named Nicole Schmidt whose grandfather took her on his knee and instilled in her a hunger for storytelling. In honor of Charles Henderson, my grandfather, I've been working on this labor of narrative love for well over a year. My intent is to bring to life that same immediacy, the same earnest involvement in the story I had all those years ago when my grandfather whipped up spontaneous tales. I also want to connect you with the stories of generations past, with the stories produced by those lost to history, and as Angela Carter so eloquently put it, with the vivid, raw narratives of the anonymous poor whose labor formed our world. Want to join in on this vision? Would you like to encourage and support me in churning out more stories? For sure, with a full-time job, I need the extra oomph of knowing you all are getting something out of it. You can support me on Patreon and become a part of that inner circle of storytelling enthusiasts whose creative partnership will help shape the future content of Mythos. You can also like my Mythos podcast page on Facebook, and head over to mythospodcast.com to read more about my inspiration and rationale for particular stories. And if you want inspiration for your own creative efforts or just want to do some more imaginative frolicking, there's also suggestions for novels, stories, and films. Or you're just wanting more storytelling. Well, the rest of the Lore Britannia series is there for you to explore. Everything from phantom dogs prowling the moors to water witches haunting stagnant ponds. Happy listening.